The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Let me ask this. When, when you think about the book of Jonah, what comes to mind? This is, this is participatory. This is the awkward participatory part of the sermon. What comes to mind when you think about the book of Jonah? A whale. Yeah. A big old fish. And I, look, the, the book of Jonah, which we're going to be focusing in on today as we continue to, to move through the minor prophets, one sermon per week on each of the minor prophets. Look, the, the book of Jonah is perhaps one of the most well-known books in the Bible. And, and the fact that we all have a picture that comes to mind when we think about it is evidence of just that. And it, it's certainly one of the most well-known books in the Minor Prophets. I think it, it, it might be safe to say that it is, Jonah is the most well-known book in the Minor Prophets. And look, that, that's... That's because not only is it an incredible piece of literature, and, and it is that, but it, it has all the makings of a great and memorable story, right? And so, um, on, the, on the one hand, there's this tendency in, in a, a really good story to, to step back and to say something like, man, can you believe that guy? Only to be drawn in and by the time the story is over, you realize, oh, no, wait, I am that guy. It's a, a relatively short, fast-paced, engaging narrative. And it's, it's very possible that this story was told to you as a child or if you have a children's Bible at home that you're reading your kids it's very possible you've read the story of Jonah to them time and time and time again. And by the way, it has all the elements of a good children's story, doesn't it? A big fish, like whales are cool. There's action. There's vomit. I mean, it has really everything that kids are looking for in a good, in a good story. Now, the, the book of Jonah, let's talk about the book it. It was written sometime between the 8th and the 3rd century B.C. It, it was written by an anonymous author, though I would argue, it, it's, it's, it, it's my opinion that, that Jonah himself was the one who wrote this book. Now, a lot of commentators say, whoa, there's no way Jonah could have written this book. Look at how critical it is of Jonah. Um, but if, if you've been arrested by God's grace, you know that, um, look, I, I'm, I'm very willingly to talk about uh, who I was before meeting Jesus. I'm, I'm very willing to talk about um, my past sin and failure. Why? Because those things don't define me. And, and all of them point me and anyone who will hear to the, the, the goodness of God and, and the, the glorious grace that he extends to us as his people. I, I lean in the direction of kind of an 8th century B.C. writing of the book um, for this reason, because I, I do think that Jonah was the one who wrote it. Um, look, Jonah is unique, very unique, and, and if you've read the book of Jonah, you probably made this observation. It's, it's very unique compared to the other prophetic books. It's going to be very unique compared to the other minor prophets as we preach through these, and that is because the vast majority of Jonah is narrative. 
It contains very, very few words of prophecy. In fact, in our English Standard Version Bible, it contains one sentence of prophecy, eight words. And we'll get to that here in a bit. And so be, for this reason, because there's, it's largely narrative, there are disagreements about just how this work should be, should be categorized in terms of genre. Some inaccurately refer to it as a piece of fiction. It's like, look, a, a, a guy being swallowed by a whale, spit out three days later. That seems far-fetched. Historical fiction. Maybe it's an allegory or a, a parable. We're not going to get into the, the we're not going to have time to break all of that down today, but I, I do want to make a, a couple of, of direct points here about the book of Jonah. Number one, the book of Jonah is a historical prophetic narrative. Historical prophetic narrative. For example, you'll see similarities between Jonah and the stories of Elijah and Elisha. It's historical in nature. It, it depicts factual events that actually took place. Miraculous events, yes, but factual events nonetheless. This is clearly the author's intent. The author is clearly not writing uh, a parable. The whale is clearly not merely a symbol or a metaphor. This, is a, this book is historical in nature. And at the same time, Jonah is didactic in nature. What I mean by that is Jonah, the, the narrative, it has something to teach us. The author desires to teach lessons to his readers. And he does so in the form of narrative. Now in, in verse 1, we, we meet Jonah, the son of Amittai. It says in the um, and, and in fact, this is not the only place that Jonah is mentioned. If we go all the way back to 2 Kings 14, I think we have this on the, the screen here for you. We, we read about Jonah here as well. It says, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, the king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned for 41 years. We're talking about Jeroboam the second here. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. And so Jonah prophesied and his ministry took place under the reign and the rule of a, of a wicked king. That, that's what, the first observation we need to make there. He restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the sea as, as far as the Sea of Arabah, of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath Hefer. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And so then we find out that Jonah prophesied about the expansion of Israel's borders. Jonah prophesied about 
the people of Israel, kind of returning to a place of prominence in the region, recapturing land that had previously been lost. Take note of this, that all of this happened under the reign and rule of an evil king. This was, this, this expansion of Israel's borders didn't happen because Israel was walking faithfully with God, but rather because of God's mercy and grace. They were, they were certainly undeserving. But look, Jonah would have been a very po- popular prophet because he prophesied that the borders would be expanded. He prophesied that they would take this land back, and then it actually happened. Jonah's ministry was a successful one. He would have been well-known. He would have been well-liked. Debated over, no, I'm not going to, no, debated over and over again uh, about whether or not to use this line. I'm going to do it. Look, Jonah prophesied about making Israel great again, right? And, And look, it actually happened in a tangible way. His prophecy came about. Verse 2, the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. We need to know a little bit about Nineveh as well. Nineveh was an Assyrian city. Part of the Assyrian Empire. It was one of the, the great cities in the ancient Near East, located uh, in what is now northern Iraq. Nineveh would eventually become the capital city of the, the Assyrian Empire. And what we need to know about the Assyrian Empire, we could go all the way back to Pastor Todd's kind of introduction sermon to this series. The Assyrian Empire was an enemy nation. In fact, the Assyrian Empire would deal the death blow to the, to the northern kingdom of Israel. One source I read said this about Nineveh. It said that Nineveh was the capital of one of the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, and most idolatrous empires in the world. And this, this is where Jonah, the son of Amittai, is being sent to prophesy. And so now that we have a little bit of context, a little bit of background, let's walk through the narrative together. I want to make sure that we do this. Chapter 1 all the way to chapter 4, start to finish, and then we'll circle back around and make a few observations. And so Jonah, it's, it's four chapters long, and each chapter takes us to a different scene in the narrative. In the first scene, we see Jonah on the run. Now again, the Lord tells Jonah, his prophet, he he says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and prophesy against it. And what does Jonah do? He boards a ship and goes in the exact opposite direction. That's what he does. He goes in the exact opposite direction. We're told that he's fleeing from the presence of the Lord, and, and the Lord responds By hurling a great wind upon the sea, this this verb hurling, we're going to see more than once in chapter 1. He he hurls this great storm upon the sea, and and the storm was so bad, we're told, that the ship was threatening to break up. It was was threatening to sink, and and these these, uh, uh, experienced sailors on the ship panicked. 
See, while Jonah was asleep below the deck, chaos ensued on the deck. And we see that the sailors are, are crying out to their gods. This is a Gentile crew. They would have been uh, likely polytheistic uh, worshipers. They, they had many gods, and so they were just kind of picking one crying out to their gods, working their way through the list. They were throwing cargo overboard, trying to lighten the load in, in hopes that they might survive. And eventually it was revealed that Jonah, who was on board, was the one who was responsible for it all. He had told them that he was fleeing his God, and then he told them, by the way, my God is the one who made the sea and the land. And so Jonah Again, attempting to flee from the Lord. I, I'm not convinced this was a, a purely altruistic move, but he says, hey, this is my fault. This is all on my account. Why don't you throw me overboard? And then the, the sea will calm. The sailors are a little bit tentative ab about this particular plan, sending a man to his death, whose God is the God who created the sea. But they cry out to the Lord for mercy. They pick Jonah up and they throw him overboard. And immediately, the sea calms. And look, irony is something we see over and over again in this book. And, and we have this really ironic scene at the end of chapter 1 where it's not Jonah, the prophet of the Lord, who is worshiping the Lord. But, but who is it that we see at the end of chapter 1 worshiping the Lord and offering sacrifices? The pagan sailors. We're told, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and, make, and, and made vows. And then the final verse tells us about Jonah's fate. It, said the Lord, it says, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. It's interesting, by the way, that the, the picture that comes into all of our minds when we think about this book is from this single verse. The, the whale doesn't get much whale doesn't get much love in this particular narrative, though it is memorable. And that brings us to scene two, which is a prayer that Jonah prays from the belly of this fish. Kaylee read this passage or this prayer for us just a bit ago. The prayer that Jonah prays is a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a prayer of thanksgiving for deliverance. You see, normally we would think of like this act of being swallowed by a fish. Normally we would file that under like that's a bad thing, right? Being swallowed by a fish is something that, that we tend to just like avoid at all costs. That usually doesn't end well. But what we discover instead is that what happened is that as Jonah was sinking down to the bottom of the sea, that he, he finally broke his silence. He finally cried out to the Lord, something he hadn't done up to this point. He cried out to the Lord for help, and this fish was the means of salvation that the Lord sent to Jonah. The fish was a means by which Jonah was saved from a certain watery grave. And we see that the, the prophet has finally come to his senses. 
and he promises a response of worship and thanksgiving. That was the rest of the story will tell us this was this was short-lived. He, he says in verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Look at that last sentence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. On the one hand, I think this could be the most significant verse in the entire book of Jonah. In fact, if I were to summarize what is the book of Jonah about in a sentence, that would be my sentence. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so Jonah, he has his theology straight. He makes the right confession. On the other hand, in light of everything that is to follow, especially in chapter 4, as we'll see, this might also be the single most ironic book, or ironic verse in the entire book of Jonah. That brings us to scene 3, chapter 3, which takes Jonah to the city of Nineveh, finally. We read that the fish vomits Jonah out on dry land after three days. And then chapter 3 begins in the same way that chapter 1 began. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell, that I tell you. But this time it goes differently. This time Jonah obeys. He goes to Nineveh. And this is the entire message that he proclaims. And the only word of prophecy that we see in the book of Jonah. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. He goes throughout the city proclaiming this message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words. Eight words in our English Bibles. If we went back to the original Hebrew language, we would see it's even less impressive. It's five. It's five words in the original Hebrew. Sermons may be a little underwhelming. Perhaps. But it got results. What we're told is that the people of Nineveh believed God. And not just some of the people of Nineveh believed God, the entire city, this entire wicked, vile, enemy city, the entire city believed God and repented. In fact, we're told that the word of the Lord made its way all the way to the king or the, the governor in Nineveh, and he called for a citywide fast in hopes that God would turn from his anger, and in 40 days, death and destruction wouldn't fall upon them. God sees their response to his word that he sent with his prophet. And verse 10 says that when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now this is, this is incredible. This is incredible. It, it might be the most successful sermon preached in the history of mankind. An entire pagan city responded to Jonah with repentance. 
And look, the kind of repentance we see here is, is up for debate. I would actually, I would argue the sailors in chapter 2, in the sailors, we see a genuine conversion to faith in the Lord. You see, it, the, the text says uh, that they, they cried out and they, they feared the Lord. And, and in your Bible, it probably has the Lord in all caps in, in chapter 2 at the end of, of, the, or at the end of chapter 1. L-O-R-D, all in caps. What, what we see here, though, in chapter 3 with Nineveh, we see the king saying things like, who knows, God may turn and relent. You see that in the city of Nineveh, they're not crying out to L-O-R-D, all in caps, that being God's covenant name, Yahweh. But here, they're crying out to God. The, the, the word there is Elohim. This is a more general, less personal name for God. And so it could be that the entire city wasn't converted to faith in the Lord, and, and yet the entire city turns from their sin and repents. Second of all, we're going to see in a couple of weeks in the book of Nahum that Nineveh's repentance didn't last terribly long. But look, regardless of, regardless of what kind of repentance it was, the repentance of the Ninevites was sincere. And the Lord saw it, and the Lord re relented from disaster. Now, you would think that Jonah would be thrilled, right? You'd think that he would be really excited about this. Well, that brings us to scene four, the final scene in the narrative where we see Jonah talking with God. But it displays pleased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is not this what I said when I was yet in my country this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish you see don't mistake this and, and don't miss this the reason that the Lord fled from the presence of the Lord the reason that he got on a ship and went in the exact opposite direction of Nineveh wasn't that he was afraid of the Ninevites what he was afraid of is that what just happened would happen. And that the Lord would actually have mercy upon this great enemy nation. For I knew you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord asked him a question. Do you do well to be angry? We see that the Lord even gives Jonah an object le lesson. That, so Jonah goes outside the city. He sets up camp. And he's going to watch the fireworks. He's, he's going to wait and see what happens over the course of the next 40 days. And, and what he's hoping for is that the Lord will rain down hellfire and brimstone upon the city. And so the, the Lord, what he does is he makes a plant to grow to give Jonah shade from the oppressive heat of the sun. But the very next day, the, the Lord sends, sends a, a worm that kills a plant. He, he makes the plant wither 
and die. And so we see that once again, Jonah is sitting unsheltered in the oppressive heat. And, and once again, Jonah says, it would be better for me to die than to live right now. And the book ends with this exchange between the Lord and Jonah. But God said to Jonah, do you do well? He said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. This is how angry Jonah is about this plant. It's a really nice plant. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. And also, if you're not going to care about the people, they also have much cattle. That's kind of funny. And a little bit mysterious, that, that last verse. And this is, this is how it ends. Interestingly enough, the book of Jonah is a story of pagan Gentiles coming to faith and worshiping the Lord and, and walking the path of repentance, offering sacrifices, the, the sailors on the ship, all the pagans in the city of Nineveh. We never actually see this from Jonah. We're, we're left to wonder what, what happened. And so then, there are three major takeaways I want to break down for us briefly with the time that we have left. The, the, the first is this. As we, as we take a look at the prophet who is on the run, the first observation is you can't outrun the sovereignty of God. You can't outrun the sovereignty of God. First of all, his presence is inescapable. Again, in chapter 1, we're told explicitly that Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of of the Lord. Now Jonah, as any good prophet, he would have been well acquainted with texts such as Psalm 139. It's in this psalm that David writes, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in, in Sheol, death itself, you were there. Where are you going to go to flee from the presence of a God who's everywhere present? And here we see the beginning of Jonah's folly, don't we? And perhaps our own. Because, look, Jonah's going to give it a go anyways. This reminds me of, a, we have a bedtime routine with, with our youngest every night before bed. This has been going on for months. I get, a, I get a, a, a call from upstairs, Daddy, come find me. And so I, I, go up, I go up to his room, and he has one spot where he hides, all the same spot. And I, I walk into the room, and I, I start to look. And I, we have particular places I look, and I, I, look, under the, I look under the bed, I go, are you under the bed? And I hear a voice from his hiding spot. Nope, I'm not under the bed. Well, how about the closet? Let's go look in the closet. Are you in the closet? Nope, I'm not in the closet. I'm right here. I'm right here. Uh, look, three-year-olds aren't very good at hiding. 
But let's be honest, neither are you. Neither are you. You're not very good at hiding from a God who sees all, from a God whose presence can't be fled from. And so I, I wonder, are, are you like Jonah? Are you also running from God right now, attempting to hide? Maybe hide your sin, or like Jonah, maybe you're running from his commands, or, or something that he's called you to, or the, the mission that he's given you to non-Christians around you. Look, you, you know the right answer, just like, just like Jonah did. Don't, don't you know that the Lord sees you? He sees it all. He sees all of you. You can't hide from him. You can't flee from his presence or his sovereign will. Look, what if we just stop trying? What if we just stop trying to hide? And look, that, that's to say nothing of the negative consequences that inevitably result from our attempts to run and to hide. Jonah had some pretty serious consequences. Almost drowned, for one. As I've, I've heard one pastor say, he said, when you run away from the Lord, you never get to where you're going and you always pay the fare. Never get to where you're going and you always pay the fare. And so, so first of all, his presence is inescapable, but also his control is also, it, it, it's inescapable. Despite the fact that Jonah is running from the Lord, one thing that you'll notice as you read through the Jonah narrative is that the Lord is active and in control throughout the entire thing. For example, after Jonah boarded, boarded the ship for Tarshish, the Lord, we're told, hurled a great wind upon the sea. And then we're told that the Lord appointed the fish to swallow Jonah. This wasn't just something that just happened. This wasn't just a coincidence. In chapter 2, we're told that the Lord heard Jonah's voice when he cried out. We're, we're told that the Lord spoke to the fish when it vomited him out on the shore. We're, we're told that the Lord spoke to Jonah twice. Twice sending him as his prophet to the city of Nineveh. Look, even as revival breaks out in the city of Nineveh, the entire city repents. Look, repentance on this scale doesn't just happen because of a five-word sermon. The Lord, in his sovereignty, was active in the midst of the Assyrians in Nineveh as well, bringing about their brokenheartedness and sense of repentance. And then we're told the Lord relented of disaster against Nineveh. And that he appointed a plant to grow and provide Jonah with shade. He, he, appoint, he appointed the worm to attack said plant so that it would die. The Lord knows all. The Lord sees all. And the Lord is sovereign and in control over all. You can't outrun the sovereignty of the Lord. And neither can you outrun the redemptive plan of the Lord. That's point number two. 
it's, it's worth recalling here a, a little bit about Jonah's career as a prophet. Remember, up to this point, he had enjoyed a great deal of success. He, he prophesied about the expansion of Israel's borders, and then it happened. And so he was well known and well thought of by his countrymen. And now think about this. The Lord has sent him to be a prophet to a Gentile nation. And not just any Gentile nation, but an especially wicked Gentile nation. And not just an especially wicked Gentile nation, but an enemy Gentile nation. And in fact, in 722 BC, it would be the Assyrians that would destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And Jonah knew what would happen. He knew what would happen if the Ninevites listened to his message and repented. What would happen? He knows God. He knows the character of God and the nature of God. He knew that the Lord would relent from judgment. And now, Jonah would have a new reputation. He would be the prophet, the traitor, who went to the enemy nation and proclaimed the word of the Lord that led to their repentance. He would single-handedly, if they listened, be responsible for the, the, the saving of the enemy. So look, Jonah lost sight, ultimately, of why the people of Israel had been chosen to be God's people in the first place. You see, God's plan was never to save Israel for Israel's own sake. God's plan was never to make Israel great or Israel's names great for Israel's own sake. We see, all, we, we go here often, all the way back in Genesis 12, and the Lord is talking to Abraham, making a covenant with him. We, we see that God's plan was to, save Israel, was to save Israel for the sake of the blessing of all of the nations in the world and for the sake of his own glory. God's plan was to make his name and his glory known through his people Israel to Gentile nations. Gentile nations such as the enemy nation of Assyria. And look, you and I, we're not saved for our own sake either. His plan isn't merely to make your name known or, or my name known or to serve our agenda or to make us great. His plan isn't merely to glorify you and me, it's to glorify himself. Look, saving you wasn't Jesus' end goal. That's not where the mission stops. Saving you was a means by which, and is the means by which, Jesus might save more. And the book of Jonah calls us, as God's people, to proclaim the message of salvation to those who are around us. And look, most of us don't even have to travel to some nasty city like Nineveh to do it. 
We just have to go next door. But this is God's redemptive plan. You can't change it. You can't escape it. You can't can't outrun it. God showed his glory to you so that he might show his glory to others through you. And, And look, maybe you've been running from this for a long time. You might be saying to yourself, look, I I have different reasons than Jonah, but I'm running from God's calling on my life as one of his sent missionary disciples as well. If Jonah was a failed prophet, then I'm certainly a failed evangelist. Well, fortunately, as the book of Jonah shows us, neither can you outrun the mercy of God. And that's our third point of application First of all, in in the book of Jonah, what we see is we see the Lord extending great mercy to his people. And in the book of Jonah, his people is Jonah. (laughs) Let's be clear. Jonah was a disobedient prophet. Jonah was a failed prophet. And yet, despite Jonah's disobedience, the Lord doesn't abandon him. He disciplines him for sure. He brings him to a low and humble place. Yes, absolutely. But Jonah's story isn't the story of God pouring out his wrath and judgment upon a disobedient prophet. That would have made for a much shorter book, by the way. One scene. Jonah aboard gets on board the ship going to Tarshish in the opposite way of, of Nineveh. The Lord strikes him dead. The end. On to the next. But that's not how it ends. Ultimately, you see, Jonah is a story about the extravagant mercy of God towards his people. His people like Jonah, his people like you, his people like me. It's a story of his loving pursuit of his people. It's a story of his covenant faithfulness toward his people. It's a story of his unmerited, undeserved favor that he shows to his people. It's it's a story about the restoration of his people. And that's exactly what he does for Jonah. When Jonah calls out to him from his watery grave, he saves Jonah via a fish. And then we read these incredible words at the beginning of chapter 3. We read, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I'm not sure that we can overstate how much mercy and love and grace is packed into this single verse. That the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah gets a second chance. Jonah is recommissioned. You cannot run the mercy of God. But look, it's not just Jonah. In chapter 1, even as Jonah is abandoning his post as a prophet of the Lord, fleeing from the very God for whom he serves as a mouthpiece, the Lord saves a ship full of pagan sailors. A ship full of pagan sailors who weren't looking for a new God to worship. They had plenty on their own. And then, of course, there's Nineveh, that, that great and wicked and violent and godless city, the enemy and oppressor of God's people. 
Look, Jonah had already reached his verdict. And his verdict was, was guilty. It's, it's interesting, when we, when we think about the Old Testament, especially the prophets, a lot of people like to, like to say that, oh, the only thing that we see in the Old Testament is this God of wrath. He's just so angry all the time. Look, the book of Jonah shows us that, that the Old Testament, the, the prophets, don't, don't just prophesy about a God of wrath. In fact, if anything... The book of Jonah is about a God, of wrath, a, a, a God of mercy and a people of wrath. Because wrath had been stored up in Jonah's heart. His verdict was decided. He cared more about the plant that offered him shade than he did any of the human beings that lived in the city of Nineveh. In fact, he cared so little about them that he didn't even want to proclaim the message that the Lord gave him to, to proclaim to them. He, he didn't even want to give them a chance to repent. If he had his way, he would have signed their death sentence. And I think if we asked why this was, I think Jonah would have would have said that the Ninevites simply weren't worthy of God's relenting mercy. But as it turns out, this isn't how God conducts his business, is it? He doesn't just extend his mercy and grace to those who are worthy. In fact, he does just the opposite. The Lord extends his mercy and his love and his grace to those who are completely unworthy of it. And look, this is the danger in us forgetting where we came from. Because if, if we're not careful, we'll convince ourselves that we received mercy because somehow we deserved it. And that allows us to look at those around us that, that we think don't deserve mercy, and we get to vilify them. And maybe even say, no, they don't even deserve to hear the gospel. I'll go tell someone who does. But remember, if, if you call yourself a Christian, you weren't always on God's side either, were you? Ephesians 2 says that apart from Christ, before we were saved, we were children of wrath. Just like the, wrath, the, the rest of mankind. Ephesians 5.10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Look, it's not until we realize that but for the grace of God, you and I, we are the Ninevites. It's not until we realize this that we'll freely and willingly and even eagerly be compelled to share the gospel with those around us, even our enemies. Jesus in Matthew 12 actually makes reference to the prophet Jonah. We read that then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They, they just want to see a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign that proves that you are who you say you are. And Jesus answered them this way, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The wicked enemy city of Jonah will condemn the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? Because they had an imperfect prophet. They had a failed prophet in Jonah. And even they repented. Even they listened. Even they turned. And who stands before them? But Jesus. Someone greater than Jonah. Look, this is, this is what the prophet Jonah should do for us. This is what the book of Jonah should do for us. That Jonah leaves us longing for someone better. As incredible as this story is, Jonah, in all his disobedience and imperfections, he leaves us longing for someone better as he runs from the sovereignty of the Lord, the redemptive plan of the Lord, and the mercy of the Lord. He points us to and sends us running to Jesus, who is our better prophet. You see, Jonah went on a downward journey in order to escape God's presence. We read that Jesus came down to bring his people into God's presence. Jonah was the cause of the storm that almost killed him. Jesus was one who calmed storms. Jonah, while he was on the ship with the, sail, with the sailors, sacrificed himself for his own sin. Jesus was without sin of his own, and yet he still sacrificed himself for others. Jonah ran from God in disobedience. Jesus submitted himself to the Father, becoming obedient to the point of death on a cross. Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish before he was vomited out. Jesus spent three days in the grave and rose again. Jonah prophesied about the expansion of Israel's borders. Jesus came to welcome the nations into his kingdom. Jonah was a reluctant prophet. Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jonah was angry enough to die because of God's mercy towards his enemies. Jesus was compassionate enough to die because of his love for his enemies. Someone greater than Jonah is here. And his name is Jesus. And now, brothers and sisters, we've been sent to that great city of Lincoln and beyond to proclaim the goodness of his grace by trusting in his sovereignty, not running from it, being swept up into his redemptive story and his plan, not running from it, proclaiming the glorious, merciful grace and love that he offers 
to all who will turn from their sin and repent and trust in him, not, not run from it. And so, look, again, maybe you're sitting here and you're like, Adam, I, this is something I've not been faithful to. I've already failed. And look, if that's you and, and that's me too, let me end by reading Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, one more time. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. In his mercy and in his grace, the word of the Lord, the, the commissioning to you and to me as his sent missionary people, it comes to us today a second time as well. Let's pray. Father, Jonah knew it, and we know it as well. You are a gracious God. And merciful, you're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Lord, you have pursued us as your people, even when we were running in the opposite direction. Lord, we thank you for the, the extravagant and furious grace with which you pursued us. Father, would we be faithful to proclaim this good news to those in our city who are far from you and need to hear it as well. Would you work through us as your broken people just as you did through your broken prophet. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.